read from Matthew's Gospel in chapter 16. And before I read, I also want to just uh, say how much we appreciate John and Dorothy Bartlett, who came from Charlotte Chapel to Toronto. I think John led a research team from Edinburgh University that came en, en masse to Toronto. And very few people have thrown themselves in so fully into the church and into uh, activities in the church as they have done. And we appreciate them very much. So thank you for releasing them. Now I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 16 and uh, from verse 13. I know you use the 2011 New International Version. I have the 1984 New International Version, which should be renamed the Old International Version or the Old New International Version. But I'm not sure what difference there will be, but uh, let me read it to you. Matthew 16, verse 13. When Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you, that you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law. And that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone will come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. And that's as far as I'm going to read. Jesus had been with his disciples probably at this stage for about half of his ministry. They got up to Caesarea Philippi, which is the most northerly point to which Jesus ever went. And as they were there together, he asked them this question. Who do people say the Son of Man is? In other words, what are the rumors circulating about me? What are you picking up on the street? What kind of gossip is circulating about me? Who do people say that I am? And they gave him the answers. Some say you're John the Baptist. John had had his head cut off by Herod, so they said, some say you're John with your head back on. Some say you're Elijah, who went up in a fiery chariot, and uh, you've been orbiting ever since, and now you've landed. They say that's who you are. Some say you're Jeremiah. Probably because of the tears of Jesus. Jeremiah was the weeping prophet. 
Some say one of the other prophets. And Jesus said to them, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, which is not unusual because Simon Peter was always the first to talk. We read more often of Peter than any other of the disciples. Then spoke, spake Peter, up spake Peter. Peter lifted up his voice and said. Then Peter answered. In fact, we have two occasions when Peter answered when he hadn't been asked anything. So he was always quick to speak. And Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus' reply was, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. This was not revealed to you by man, but by my father who is in heaven. You didn't work this out, Peter. You didn't sit down and put together a few logical uh, indicators and say, oh, that's who he is. This is by revelation you've known who I am. I imagine when Jesus said that, Peter probably felt very pleased. He had a brother in the disciples called Andrew. He probably thought, Andrew, did you hear what he said? <laughs> Blessed are you, Simon. <laughs> when you write home, tell them he said that about me. <laughs> John, you think you're the favorite, don't you? Did you hear what Jesus just said? <laughs> Blessed is me. I am the recipient of divine revelation. Did you get that, John? I don't think so. What about you? didn't, Andrew. What about the rest of you? No, no. Imagine Peter had grounds to feel very pleased with himself. But now go six verses later to verse 23. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. That's very strong language. I can imagine Peter felt acutely embarrassed. He probably thought to himself, I hope Andrew wasn't listening this time. John, you didn't hear that, did you? Why the sudden change? On the one hand, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. This was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. You have been the recipient of divine revelation, Peter. Blessed are you. And six verses later, on the same occasion, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block. What has gone wrong? Let me read you verse 21. From that time on, that being the time that Peter has affirmed who Jesus is, the Son of God, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. This was news to them, of course. Jesus had never spoken about his cross until now, and he tells them what's going to happen. And Peter, verse 22, took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Notice something strange about those two words, never, Lord. Well, if you think about it, they are, of course, a contradiction in terms. To say never and to say Lord in the same sentence is a contradiction. Because to say Lord is to cancel out the right to say never. And to say never 
is to cancel out his role as Lord. And Peter's problem is this. His doctrine is correct in verse 17, given to him by revelation from God. His doctrine is correct, but his doctrine has never been translated into life and into experience. Which is why in verse 20, he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. There's little more dangerous to the interests of Jesus Christ than someone whose doctrine is right, but whose life is wrong. Years ago, I was leading a conference of teenagers, and uh, it lasted a week. On the first day when, when they arrived, I helped uh, a group who'd come up from a certain town in England uh, with their suitcases. I carried the suitcase of one boy to their room, and on the way, I said, asked him his name, and, and I said to him, are you a Christian? I didn't always ask people that right off. And he said, yes, I am. I said, that's wonderful. How long have you been one? He told me, was it two or three years, whatever it was. I said, that's great. But in the course of that week, it became fairly evident that he wasn't living like a Christian. And he became a, a huge nuisance in the whole house party conference that we were having. One day, one of the staff came to me and said, you've got to do something about that young man. He is, he, uh, and I won't go into details of why and how he was such a nuisance. So I asked him to come and see me. We sat down. I said to him, I want to ask you a question. Are you a Christian? He said, yes, I am. I told you that on Saturday. I said, that's right, you did. How long have you been one? He gave me the answer. I told you that on Saturday as well, two, three years, whatever it was. I said, will you do me a favor for the rest of this week? He said, what's that? If somebody asks you if you're a Christian, would you please tell them to mind their own business? But don't tell them you're a Christian. He said, why not? Because you're doing more to undo all that we're trying to accomplish in these other people here this week by the way you're living and the attitudes you're adopting. And I can tell you there was a good end to that story because at the end of that week, we had an open test to me time and he got up and he said, you know, I never realized how my life had been so broken and so anti what I believed until this week. But that's what Jesus was saying to these disciples. You now have been the recipient of divine revelation. You now have an understanding of me that you never had before. And this is wonderful. Blessed are you, Simon. And by default, all those with him, of course, shared in that blessing. But please, don't tell anyone. If you want to know why, it's because doctrine in itself does not make you spiritual. You can dot your theological I's and cross your theological T's and do so by divine revelation. But unless and until that has been translated into life, it's of no value. And incidentally, in the next chapter, just as an aside, Jesus took Peter, James, and John upon the Mount of Transfiguration. You remember that event, don't you? And Moses and Elijah appeared with him. Peter opened his mouth and said, Lord, it's we make three shelters. Peter 
never thought it was an impulse. He just said, well, let's put up a shelter for Moses, a shelter for Elijah, a shelter for Jesus, etc. Then the voice came from heaven, this is my son, with whom who I love, and with him I am pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down on the ground. They realized they were sitting under this voice, audible voice of God speaking to his son, similar to John the Baptist also had heard the audible voice of God saying something very similar. And then the lights went out and Moses and Elijah disappeared. And as they came down the mountain, Jesus said to them, don't tell anyone. Why? Because if in chapter 16, Peter had to learn that doctrine in itself doesn't make you spiritual, he had to learn in chapter 17 that experience in itself doesn't make you spiritual either. You can have the most wonderful experiences of God. But doesn't make you spiritual in itself. And so he says to them, and says to Peter in verse 24, and to the disciples with him, if anyone will come after me, if anybody is serious about being a real disciple and experiencing that spiritual life that is the central component of discipleship, Here's what it's going to take. He must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Let me talk about those three things for a few minutes. If you want to be a true disciple, you must deny yourself, said Jesus. Now, what does it mean to deny ourselves? We, we talk about self-denial sometimes as being heroic little acts, like not taking sugar in your tea. Or worse, not taking sugar in your coffee. <laughs> and uh, people have self-denial days and self-denial weeks. And some folks celebrate 40 days of self-denial during Lent. And what that usually means is I don't partake of the things that I normally would enjoy. And this is kind of some expression of self-denial. Well, that may be good for discipline, of course. But this is not what Jesus had in mind. What Jesus had in mind was the exact opposite of what Peter was telling Jesus in the previous verse. I must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the chief priests and scribes, etc. I'm going to go there, I'm going to be put to death, I'm going to rise from the dead. And Peter's response is, never, Lord. What is Peter saying? He's saying there that you don't have to suffer, you don't have to go through these difficult times. And Jesus saying in response, Peter, unless you come to the same place of saying, what happens to me in the process of fulfilling the will of God is irrelevant to me. What was going to happen to Jesus Christ through his cross, it was of course the purpose for which, for which he came into the world. But though it would involve pain and suffering, the pain and suffering was irrelevant to the bigger picture of what was the will of his father. And Peter, if you want to be a true disciple, you've got to come to that point of saying, what happens to me in the process of doing the will of my father is irrelevant to me. If I'm to live a life of relative ease, that's okay. If I'm to live a life of hardship and suffering, 
that's okay. If I'm to go off to the mission field deprived of my immediate family and friends, that's okay. If I'm to live at home and live in prosperity, that's okay. If I stay single all my life, that's okay. If I marry and have half a dozen kids, that's okay because the issue is not what do I want. The issue now is what does God want? And this is the essential ingredient in discipleship, isn't it? Took Peter a long time to learn this. I love the incredible patience of the Lord Jesus with Peter as his incredible patience with you and with me. Because you remember that on the night that Jesus was arrested, Jesus had said to his disciples in Matthew 26 and verse 31, Jesus told them, this very night you will all fall away on account of me. Peter was indignant when Jesus said that. And he replied, Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. In other words, Jesus, I understand that maybe some of these may fall away. I understand that John is mainly sentimental. He's an inch deep, and I understand under pressure why he might fall away. I understand why Thaddeus, who no one's ever heard of, who's going to cause quiz teams to lose points, because they never remember the 12th disciple, I can understand him going away. But I want to promise you, Jesus, if all these fall away, I never will. You've got me. And Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, this very night before the rooster crows, you'll disown me three times. And Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I'll never disown you. Peter, before the cock crows to welcome in the first light of tomorrow morning's dawn, you will have denied me three times. You remember what happened, don't you? Even though Peter said, if I have to die with you, if I have to put four crosses on that hill and put me on the fourth, I'll be there, Jesus, don't worry. And you remember they did arrest him, and Peter followed in the distance. And uh, as he was following a distance, a young lady came by and said, uh, aren't you one of his disciples? Why do you say that? Because I thought I'd seen you with him. No, no. Must have been somebody who looked like me. Oh, I'm sorry. Peter probably thought, phew, got away with that. Somebody else came by and said, don't you have a Galilean accent? Aren't you one of his disciples? Well, it's funny you should say that. Somebody else just asked me that. No, I don't know him. And then a group of people came to him and said, aren't you one of his disciples? And I can't tell you what Peter said because Matthew's gospel tells us he cursed and he swore Denied a knowledge of God. I don't blankety blank know the blankety man. This is Peter. And when he had finished, suddenly he heard and Peter broke down and wept bitterly. Probably one of the best moments of his life. when we realize our own inherent inability, our own inherent folly, that though 
Peter was not playing when he said, I'll never leave you. He meant it. He just didn't know it was going to be so tough that he couldn't do it. And so Jesus is saying to him, unless you take up your cross, Peter, you're not going to go to a cross and die in a literal sense, although tradition has it Peter was crucified upside down because he refused to be crucified the same way as the Lord when it came to the end of his life. But Peter, if you want to be a disciple, you've got to come to the point of saying, what happens to me is not important anymore. If I live, I live. If I die, I die. If I live to I'm an old man or I die as a young man, the only thing that matters is my life in the hands of God. And is this his purpose? Is this his will in my life? James, you remember, one of the 12 was the first one to die. In Acts chapter 12, he was martyred. First one apart, of course, from Judas, who committed suicide. Peter did face this because he wrote in his letter, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, he wrote to his friends and said this, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering, as though something strange was happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted... Because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name so then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good and he could have added a personal note there and say, there was a time when I did not know this. There was a time when I would have done all I could to avoid suffering. The suffering of Jesus, you'll never go to the cross, never, Lord. My own suffering, somebody embarrasses me. Aren't you one of his disciples? That may get me into trouble. And years later, Paul says, why, Peter says, why does this surprise you that you're facing suffering? Now, there's no inherent virtue in suffering, of course, no intrinsic virtue in suffering. There is intrinsic value only in obedience. And if that obedience takes you into tough times or into easy times, equally, you trust God in those. I mean, Paul said, didn't he, in Philippians chapter 4, um, I'll just read you what, what he said there in verse 12. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, either side of that spectrum, whether living in plenty or in want, either side of that spectrum. He says, I have learned that my circumstances are not the issue. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, because I'm the same. In other words, I can live in any situation. Why? Because Christ is my strength. Christ is my life. And you know, if you and I are going to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ, it's a lot more than just following his teaching in the comfort and convenience of ordinary life. It's a willingness to say, Lord, I'm, I'm available to you. Whatever it costs. One of my daughters and my son-in-law in Toronto are involved in a ministry called uh, Move In. We launched it about six years ago now. 
through the burden and heart of a young man. And we encourage people to move into some of the neglected, difficult communities in Toronto, refugee communities where the quality of life is poor and where there's brokenness. And uh, the plan was to move in in teams of boys' teams and girls' teams. Anybody from 19 to 29 was the, was the invitation. If you're a student, go about your studies, but live in this community. Or you're working, go about your work, but live in this community. And people responded to that. And in fact, there's about 200 young people right now in Toronto who are living in these communities. My daughter and son-in-law are in one tough community where they have a, a gathering on a Sunday afternoon. They don't call it a church, they call it a gathering. About 30 people meet with them. But you know what's been the most interesting thing? It's been the parents, the Christian parents of Christian kids who do not want their kids to move into that kind of situation and have complained to us, you're encouraging my daughter, my son, to live in a dangerous environment, and dangerous it might be. My son-in-law has been wrestled to ground with a pistol to his head. My daughter, when she was single, there was a girl who was on the streets who she took into her little apartment. She let this girl sleep in her bed, and she would sleep on the floor on a mattress next to the bed. And this girl was a prostitute, had been for many years, and she had very little, totally abused, and um, my daughter gave her some clothing uh, to wear. And she said, I looked from the balcony one day and she was on the street selling herself, wearing my clothing, she said. My heart broke at that, that whole picture. But you see, you want to be a true disciple, you deny yourself. You take up your cross as a second thing. What does it mean to take up our cross? Again, I think sometimes we're a little sentimental about this. We, we, we talk about taking up the cross as putting up with unavoidable problems sometimes. Remember talking to him about one day, told him about his arthritis, and he had arthritis quite seriously. And then he said to me, I suppose it's my cross. And I said, no, it's your arthritis. <laughs> what is the cross? Well, what was the cross in the life of Jesus? This is exactly what Peter was telling Jesus he should not do, to go to the cross and suffer and be killed. He told him, never, Lord, this will never happen to you. Now says Jesus, turning back to Peter, unless you take up your cross, Peter. You deny yourself, take up your cross. And the cross in the life of Jesus was not a demonstration how to act under pressure, though there is no better example, if you want to know what the cross is in the life of Jesus, read the events in the Garden of Gethsemane, Matthew 26, verse 39. In the Garden of Gethsemane, it says, Jesus fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Father, if there's any possibility that men and women and boys and girls can be reconciled to a holy God through any other means, please, if that is possible, let that be the way. Take this cup from me. But if it is not, speaking as a man to his heavenly Father, if it is not, then not as I will, but as you will. And he went a second time in verse 42 of Matthew 26. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. 
and the cross in the life of Jesus was total obedience to the will of his Father. Jesus went willingly to the cross. We know that, of course, but he didn't go waltzing to the cross. He wasn't whistling on his way to the cross, casually. But he went with that disposition. If there's any other way, let that be the way. But if there is not, your will be done. Not as I will, but as you will. And Paul, writing in his great passage in Philippians 2, says about Jesus, he became obedient even unto death on the cross. And the cross was for Jesus an issue of obedience to his father. Peter, if you want to be a true disciple, if you want what you believe, your doctrine to become life, you've got to say, I deny myself. What happens to me is not important. That is not the criteria anymore. And I take my cross and say, what is important, what is the criteria, is that your will be done, however difficult it may be, however hard it may seem. I'll take up my cross. Now, of course, the disciples wouldn't have understood this at the time. But they would have, under living under Roman law, so say, living under Roman law, they would have once in a while seen a man carrying his cross down the road. The ultimate humiliation was to carry your own cross, as Jesus had to, to the place of crucifixion. And whenever they saw a man carrying his cross, they knew one thing about that man, and it was this. He would never come back. He would die on the cross he was carrying. Jesus said, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. This is not a condition, well, I'll obey you provided it's good. I'll obey you for as long as it's comfortable. But when it ceases to be comfortable... I'm going to quit. Notice the disposition, the trust in that course. I'm not saying that our lives are all going to involve suffering, but some of our lives will. I know a good friend, a lady I've known for nearly 50 years, who's suffering from MS to the extent now she is bedridden and basically quadriplegic. She's got up in the morning, put into a chair, put back into the bed a couple hours later, got up again in the afternoon, the same process. Everything has to be done for her. And I went to see her about two months ago, having not seen her for several years. I went into her room and her withered body was in the bed. She could speak with some clarity, though slowly, but when I walked into that room, I want to tell you something. God was there. I sensed him. Because she's a woman that's been driven through her suffering more deeply into a union with Christ. That is the only reason for existence now. And the meaning to her life. I heard Stephen Alford say on one occasion, God won't teach you anything new until your obedience is up to date. You deny yourself, you take up your cross and follow me, said Jesus. Now notice, 
when Jesus had said he was going to Jerusalem to die, Peter said, never, Lord. And Jesus had to say to him then, get behind me, Satan. Because you see, what was satanic in Peter, what was a stumbling block, as Jesus said he was in Peter, was his attempt to redirect Jesus from the path on which he was going. Peter, you've got the relationship wrong. It's not that Jesus will follow you. We pray that way sometimes. Well, I'm going here today. Would you please be with me? Come along with me. But that you follow him. That's why Jesus said, where, my serv- where, where, uh, where I am, there my servant also will be. Not where my servant is, there I will be. That is, of course, true. If the servant is in the right place at the right time under his leading. But the issue is where I am. That's where my servant needs to be. Even though we may have a million questions about it. Get behind me, Peter. Unless you deny yourself, take up a cross and follow me. You will not be my disciple. And then he says in verse 25, he says, whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. That's not an invitation to become a martyr. It was Hudson Taylor, I think, who first coined the phrase. Hudson Taylor was a pioneer missionary into China more than a century ago. I think he coined the phrase, the secret of a changed life is in discovering it's an exchanged life. What does he mean by that? He means this, if you hand your life over to Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ will hand his life over to you. And as you lose your life, give it away, you'll actually find life because he gives his life away to us in all its fullness. Peter, if you want to go on living your life your way, do so. God will never twist your arm. He'll never hold a gun to your head and say, obey or else. He never forced the issue. You can live exactly as you want, but you live for yourself. You don't give your life away to him. You will lose everything. What does it profit a man? It gains the whole world, loses his own life. It's the same word. It's soul in the NIV. It's the same word he's just been using, your own life. You know, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 10 and 11 says there, for we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may be revealed in our mortal bodies. That, he says, is what it means to me as a disciple of Jesus Christ. We are always being given over to death. Why? So that we are left impoverished? No, so that his life might be revealed in us. And it was Jim Elliot, uh, one of the murdered missionaries in Ecuador from many years ago. It was Jim Elliot who wrote when he was 22 years of age. He wrote in his diary, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He's no fool who gives away the life he cannot keep and receives in exchange the life that he cannot lose life of Jesus Christ. Everything we give to him is temporary and transient. Everything he gives to us is permanent and eternal.
We have a free gospel. We don't have a cheap gospel. Both in the sense that it was not cheap. Jesus purchased it with his blood. We're going to participate in communion together in a few minutes. This reminds us that our free salvation was a very, very expensive salvation. Not to us, but to him. But it's not cheap to receive and live in the good of either. It costs us everything. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Get behind me. Lose your life. And then you discover you find it in all its fullness. Henry Drummond was a Scottish biologist uh, and uh, an evangelist in the 19th century. And apparently, Henry Drummond was invited to address a businessman's meeting in London on one occasion. It was a meeting that had very limited time to it, a starting time and finishing time, so people can get back to their work. And for some reason, the whole process was delayed. And the chairman said to Henry Drummond, I'm afraid you will not have very much time to speak. Maybe just stand up and give a greeting or something, but then people have to go. And apparently, Henry Drummond got up and said this, gentlemen, ladies, I want you to know two things. The entrance fee to heaven is nothing. But the subscription is everything you've got. And then he sat down. That is true, isn't it? What we hold on to our little ideas, our little plans, our little lives. These lives are only three score years and ten and more if you're lucky and even more if you're Gerald Griffiths because you can go on and on so far. But only so far. What we hang on to these lives as though the meaning is found in my own pleasure, my own satisfaction, the fulfillment of my own goals, my own accomplishments. Why not find it in a meaning that will last forever. I give my life away to you. And if, Lord Jesus, it's your purpose that I function in the comfort of Edinburgh in a prosperous vocation with a nice family around me, that is absolutely fine. There's no virtue in looking for difficult times. But if equally you send me up the Amazon River in a canoe without a paddle, that's equally fine. The issue is not my will but yours. And as we give our lives away to him, he gives his life away to us. Let me finish with an old Indian legend from long ago. And if you were from India, you would know this story. It's a well-known legend of a beggar years ago sitting on the side of the road with his little bowl of rice and fingering his rice in his fingers when suddenly he heard the sound of carriage wheels and looked down the road and there coming up the road was an Indian prince a Raja and hoping the wealthy man might toss him a coin out of the window as the Raja goes by the man stood up and held out his hand. 
And when the carriage drew by him, it stopped, and the prince got out and came around and stood in front of the beggar and said, Beggar, give me your rice. The beggar was indignant, angry. Give him my rice. This is all I've got. But he fingered the rice in his bowl and took out one grain and placed it in the hand of the prince. And the prince said, is that all you're going to give me? Equally indignant, but he's in the presence of a prince here. He took another grain of rice and put it in the hand of the prince. The prince said, thank you, beggar, and tossed a couple of grains into the beggar's bowl, turned back into his carriage, and the horses began to move, and the wheels of the carriage began to turn as the prince continued down the road. The beggar sat there angry at the insult, and he began again to finger the rice in his bowl when he suddenly saw something glitter and he pulled it out. It was a pellet of gold the size of a grain of rice. He eagerly looked again and found a second one, and feverishly he looked for more. He ran his fingers over every grain in his bowl looking for more grains of gold. But there were no more. And suddenly, to his dismay, he realized that for every grain of rice he'd given to the prince, the prince had given him a grain of gold. And as tears streamed down his cheeks, he shouted up the road, Roger, Roger, if only I had known, I would have given you all of my rice. But it was too late. The day will come when each of us will say to the Lord Jesus, if only I had known, I would have given you everything. But I held things back. You holding this morning onto some puny grain of rice you don't want to give away to the Lord Jesus. He said, Lord, my life is yours. I'm expendable in your interests. My vocation is yours. My possessions are yours. My family is yours. All that I am, all that I represent, and as much as I'm able to do so, I surrender to you because the measure to which you do that, the, that will be the measure to which you enjoy the richness of his life. Here. And uh, we read in Deuteronomy a little bit earlier when faced with a choice to take life or death. And uh, in verse 10 of Deuteronomy 30, not verse 10, verse 20, now says the writer, now choose life. Why? So that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice and hold fast to him for the Lord is your life. And he'll give you many years in the land. Not some external helper, but the Lord is your very life. As you give yourself to him, and choose life. He gives himself to you.
and enjoy life. I'm so glad the Bible is honest about its leading characters, tells us the truth about its heroes. Because you see, we can be disciples of Jesus, we can have our theological I's dotted and T's crossed, important as that is. But unless that is translated into life, the way we live on Monday morning will be different to the way we affirm things on Sunday morning. When we go home, the way we treat our wives, the way we treat our husbands, the way we talk to our kids, the way we talk to the neighbors next door, the way we talk about the neighbors when they're not listening, where we go about our business and spend our money. We're not being expression of what we've affirmed on Sunday. It's been a disconnect from what we know to be true in our lives. And that's why we don't do this once. Surrender to God is not an event on a certain date at a certain time I surrender to God. It is a continuous disposition. Not my will, but yours be done. Does that make sense? That's a big part of the gospel, isn't it? Brought into that living, satisfying relationship with Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you from our hearts this morning that your purpose in our lives is not to be external, to work from a distance, to work by some remote mechanism, but your purpose is to make our bodies the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit, that we be the recipients of nothing less than the life of God. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that each of us here this morning will look into our own hearts and realize where are those areas I'm holding back and release them to you and thank you the measure to which we give our lives away to you is the measure in which we will find and enjoy and experience life in its fullness as you give your life away to us. Make this real in our experience, I pray, in Jesus' name. We're going to sing.